Genesis chapter 5. We'll begin reading at verse number 21. Genesis chapter 5, verse number 21. The Bible says, And Enoch lived sixty and five years and begat Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah three hundred years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were three hundred sixty and five years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now, you're not there, but I want to read two verses for you out of Hebrews 11. The Bible says in Hebrews 11:5, By faith Enoch was translated, that he should not see death, and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony, that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for letting us gather in this place. Lord, there's been so many prayer requests that have been mentioned tonight. Lord, uh, some of them desires and wants that we have, Lord, and, and others that have been mentioned desperate needs. And Father, some of them dire situations in which we must see you intervene. And it's going to take a God to answer all of these. And so we've brought them to you, the only and true God, knowing that you have a plan and purpose in all of these matters. Lord, give us patience and give us faith as we see your will exercised in our life. And I pray that you would, Lord, give us the hope as we face these matters day by day, Lord, not to look to self and not to look to scheming or or, or to worldly sense, but to trust in you and your providence that you have a plan and that you know what you're doing. Lord, help us to desire your will above all things in these matters. I pray that, Lord, tonight in this message you would take this truth that is is exemplified in the life of Enoch. And, Lord, drive it home to us. Teach us and grow us through your word. And may we, Lord, desire not just to be more like Enoch, but to be more like Christ, that we might please you day by day. Lord, we love you, and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. When we look in the Old Testament, Enoch stands as an example of what it means to live a life of faith. It's interesting to read through the genealogy here in uh, Genesis chapter number 5 because uh, it predominantly is just a list of names and ages. So and so lived this many years and begat this many children and then went on to live this many years. And it almost reads like a census of sorts. And then right in the middle of this uh, dissertation, right in the middle of this, uh, you know, sort of, dare we say, without being irreverent, this sort of uh, mechanical, uh, you know, passage of Scripture, we have this beautiful picture of this man that lived in an extraordinary way during the direst of times in human history. I think often it, it's lost on us. You know, the first uh, ten chapters of the book of Genesis, or the first six chapters, excuse me, of Genesis, present to us the first 1,600 years of human history. I mean, when you really, when you say it out loud like that, it's, it's almost hard to fathom just how much time in which men lived and died and had families and had children. Uh, 1,600 years in which men in the most rudimentary form of faith interacted with and fellowshiped with God. And over that 1,600 years, rather than during a time that would seem to be unpolluted in many ways relative to the world we're living in today, things did not end in brightness and utopia, but rather Genesis 6 describes to us that it was a time of deep iniquity and unrighteousness. 
And in that period of time, there's a handful of names that sort of float to the top of the mire of, of human behavior. You know, we could talk about, uh, you know, Seth and his testimony. We could talk about, uh, you know, Methuselah and his name and witness and testimony after Enoch. But Enoch, probably more than any other individual, stands as a shining beacon of what it means to know God and to live for God during this period of 1600 years. He's mentioned in Hebrews chapter number 11 as a man of deep faith who walked with God. In fact, if we were to summarize the the, the story, if we were to write his epitaph as God does, it would read in Genesis 5.24 like this, Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. He's a man who knew what it was to walk with God on a daily basis. Let me tell you something, if you're going to know Christ and if you're going to claim the name of Christ, You better learn what walking with God means. You better learn what it means to live your life daily in his presence, endeavoring to see his will brought to pass in your life. And when I look at Enoch, I look at a man, we have so little described of his life, and yet God distills down the most important things that we need to know about this man into just a handful of compact verses. And in that gives us a case text for what it means to live and walk with God in wicked and evil times. Notice three things with me tonight. I'm going to do my best to be brief. I'm not good at that, but I'll do my best to be brief tonight. And I just want you to think about three thoughts and how they impact our life and living for Christ in our day. Turn one chapter over to Genesis chapter number six with me. And I want to say a word about Enoch's times. You know, it's interesting. There's sort of this, uh, you know, uh, what's the word? Fantasy, folklore, this sort of, uh, of uh, you know, uh, the fairy tale. Let's use that terminology uh, that. As mankind has lived that there was a a simpler, easier time in which mankind just lived in sort of the beauty and utopia of nature unblemished and unspotted. It's what most literary writers would call the noble savage myth. The idea that everything was fine and uh, then all of a sudden technology and culture showed up and wrecked and ruined everything. But can I tell you, the reality is that the darkness of mankind is not something foisted externally upon him. But rather, ever since man's fall in the Garden of Eden, it's been something inborn deep inside. And you can go listen to the deepest, darkest jungles, to the most remote places, and you won't find there places where men dwell in righteousness, but you'll find places where men dwell in darkness. Nobody has to train them to do unrighteously. Nobody has to train them to hurt and abuse and murder and destroy one another. We know that from our sin nature. And it would be tempting to look at Enoch's life and think, you know, well, it must have been easier to live for God in Enoch's day. But the reality is that society was as depraved in Enoch's day as it is in our day. In fact, I don't think it would be a, a, a overstatement to say in some ways it was probably even worse in Enoch's day than it was in our day. Listen to how God describes the times in which Enoch lived. It says this in Genesis 6, 5. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. 
So that right there shatters the illusion of, of, of the noble savage, of man living in peace and harmony with nature. No, the, the, the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And you say, well, preacher, you know, uh, surely men's thoughts were pure at that time when technology and, and, and culture and, and, and society couldn't influence them. No, the Bible says this, that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Rather than being a time when man lived in simplicity and in wholeness and wholesomeness and purity, it was a time of great depravity. It says, and it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. These are the days Enoch's living in. He's not living in a time when there's a church on every corner. He's not living in a time when men are are walking circumspectly and righteously. He's not living in a time of, of simplistic purity. But we learn from these verses three things about the time that he lived in. One, we learn this. It was a time of disobedience. He lived in a time, this is how the Bible says, uh, describes it, of great wickedness. The wickedness of man was great in the earth. This wasn't a time when men were walking small in their pride and in their sin. This was a time when men were walking large in their pride and in their sin. Later on, after the flood, the first thing mankind would set about to do is build a utopia in which they could uh, cast off the chains of God's oppression. And by the way, there's never been a more sinister lie from the devil than the notion that God wants to put you in chains and the devil wants to set you free. The exact opposite is true. The devil's put you in chains. God wants to set you free. If the son's made you free, you're free indeed. The Bible describes how in the aftermath of God wrecking this singular society man built that a man by the name of Nimrod would rise up and would become a great hunter in the earth. And I think what's implied by that language is not that he'd go out and sit in a deer stand, but what is implied is that he was the first man to make a commercial enterprise of war. That he gathered men around him and began through violence and oppression to exalt himself in the earth. And all that was present, though it may have have bloomed forth in the days after the flood. All of that and more was present in the days that Enoch lived. Wasn't a day when men were walking with God. It was a day when the Bible says that every imagination of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. Now listen, we live in wicked days. There's no question. We live in days where it's hard to imagine that the depravities around us have ever even been considered or thought of before. Although I will suggest this, there's a lot more of history that's been lost than that's been kept. And even with what we know has been kept, there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, And uh, much of what we see in the depravity of the world around us has roots in ancient mysticism, uh, ancient devil possession, ancient wickedness. It's no new thing. It's just been repackaged and rebranded and and, and crammed into a 30-minute commercial bit to run across the programming box in our house. But it's nothing new. It's always been the case. And when we look at Enoch's day, we can take great encouragement of this truth. Enoch teaches us that it is possible to walk with God even in the darkest of times. Here's the lie we tell ourselves. Well, it's so bad I just can't live for God. And we have this sort of fantasy that at a time when there was more moral righteousness or more moral, uh, you know, uprightness in society, well, you know, then it would be easy to walk with God. But the truth of the matter is, no matter how wicked the world is around us, that doesn't affect the ability of the believer to walk with God. You may pay a steeper price. Hey, but listen, God's coffers are deep and he'll not be a beggar to anyone and will not be the worse for it. If Enoch could live for God in his day, 
than we could live for God in our day. This is a time of disobedience. Verse 6 says this, It repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. The use of the term uh, repent is an interesting, it's a theological concept, big $10 word they would call anthropomorphism, the idea of attributing to God certain human characteristics. And uh, theologians have argued about this terminology, repenting, uh, the Lord repenting something for uh, generations. But it's really no difficulty at all when you consider uh, other ways that the uh, Bible describes the Lord behaving and acting. For instance, the Bible says God's a jealous God. But his jealousy is not like our jealousy. It's a righteous jealousy. And in the same respect, you say, preacher, can God repent? Well, he can repent, but him repenting doesn't mean exactly what it means when you and I repent. The word repent literally means a a 180 degree about face. It means to change. Now, you and I, because we are finite, fallible individuals, uh, we change not just our actions, but we change our attitude and our heart. And for us, in fact, repentance is chiefly a matter of the heart with an outward expression, just like faith is an attitude of the heart that expresses itself outwardly. So likewise, repentance is an attitude of the heart that expresses itself outwardly. But you see, because you and I are finite, fallible human beings we don't just change our actions we have to change our heart too but God's an infinite God and he doesn't change and so what does the Bible mean when it says that he repented well what it means is this that he was treating man in a certain way and then because man acted in disobedience to the truth and laws of God he changed the way in which he was behaving towards them not because he's changed he had always said about that if they would walk in obedience he would behave a certain way if they walked in disobedience he would respond in a certain way but the Bible's merely communicating to us that God changed the way in which he was dealing with humanity because of their behavior. We could say it this way, it was a time of disobedience, but verse 5 reminds us that it was a time of disappointment. God was grieved. He had made man to delight him, but man did not delight him. Man disappointed him. In other words, this does not mean that God changed his mind, but rather that God was disappointed and grieved by the wickedness of mankind. And you stop and think, you say, well, preacher, you know, that, of course, uh, you know, I know all that. I learned it in Sunday school and I knew all that already and so on and so forth. But what does that have to do with me? Well, then think about Enoch living in the context of this. He's living in a time where men grieve the heart of God. But he says, I'm not going to live that way. I'm going to gladden the heart of God. He says, men are living in such a way that disappoints God. But he says, I'm going to live in such a way that is devoted to God, in such a way that delights God. And it's just a reminder of this. If we're going to walk by faith, we better we, we better get comfortable with not being in the majority. Yeah. We better get comfortable with the fact that living for God does not look like the popular path that the world tries to plot for us. It does not look like what is socially acceptable or normal. And certainly we should not endeavor to be strange for the sake of strangeness. But I will tell you, when you live for God, it's not going to make sense to the world. You you can just get comfortable with the fact that you're going to be out of step with the world. And if you are in step with the world, that's not an indication everything's right. That's an indication something's wrong. Enoch, hey, he lived in a time of disappointment, but he didn't disappoint God. That may not mean much to you, but I take great encouragement of the fact that even though the world grieves God, I don't have to grieve God. 
I love that we have a God that's infinite enough and is wise enough and is all powerful enough to deal with man on an individual basis. Collectivism is a tool of Satan because it's the only way he can control masses. But God is not a collectivist. God's an individualist. He deals with the human heart. And he knows what's going on in your heart and in your mind. You say, preacher, the world's so wicked and it's going this direction and I can't stop it. No, but you don't have to go with it. Enoch didn't go with it. It was a time of disobedience. It was a time of disappointment. Verse 7 tells us it was a time of destruction. It says, the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. God had sealed it in verse number 7. God didn't change his mind about this. There was a man by the name of Noah that found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God knew that Noah would. Uh, But God had had pronounced a death sentence over that world system here in Genesis 6-7. And it was sealed. It was decided. God had decided that the only way to deal with man's wickedness was to destroy him. The judgment of God would come in the form of a universal worldwide flood. You say, preach, you believe in that? Yeah, because I'm a Bible believer. I'm going to say that again. Yeah, because I'm a Bible believer. I don't need anything to qualify it. I'm a Bible believer. Uh, the fact that the Bible says it, that's enough for me. Amen. I'm a Bible believer. Of course, I believe there was a worldwide flood. By the way, modern science has supported that when it's been honest about it. But even if even if modern science hadn't, it wouldn't change the fact that as a Bible believer, I, I believe in a universal flood. You see, all of man was under God's judgment. But even in these conditions, now here's what you'll hear sometimes, and this this uh, this is a pet peeve. You hear, well, preachers ought not preach their pet peeves and their hobby horses. Well, get ready and saddle up. We're going to jump on a hobby horse. You ready? One of the things that bothers me in modern Christianity is the fatalism. The fatalism. This attitude. You say, preacher, do you believe, you know, we're, we're in the Laodicean age? I believe, I see a lot of Laodicean Christianity. Sure. I, absolutely, I see a lot of Laodicean Christianity. But I'm glad to report that for every Laodicea, there was a Colossae. I'm glad to report that for a group of believers that were lukewarm, hey, there were some that were on fire for God. There were some that hadn't forgotten about him. And I'd remind you that as John writes those seven letters in uh, Revelation 2 and, and 3, he's writing to churches that are existent next and at the time. And so there was a Laodicea. There was a group of people that were lukewarm, that didn't want to walk with God, that had no heart for him and no hunger for him. Hey, but there was also some others. Hey, there was some Smyrna's that were suffering for him. There was some Ephesus that, that, that still loved him, though they had departed their first love. There were some that had put away Jesus. Isabel, that wicked idolater. There were some that that were still living for him and had some things that he commended. Listen, it bothers me just this fatalism. Well, preacher, we're living in the end days. That's just the way it is. Well, yeah, go ahead and be carnal about it. Go ahead and quit on God. That's what he wants. No, of course, that's not what he wants. In many ways, Enoch serves as a type of the saints that will be alive at the rapture of the church. And we don't see them whining. We see them walking. We don't see them uh, wallowing. We see them worshiping. And in Enoch, we don't find a man who's sitting around grumbling about how wicked the world is. But you see a man who's walking with God in confidence, in faith and in courage. And it's a reminder to me, you say, preacher, I I know I've read my Bible. I know how this thing ends. Well, you know how it ends for them. But how does it end for you? How does your life end for you? 
Yeah, I understand. I know the next thing on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. I understand immediately following is the seven-year tribulation period. I understand that there will be an empire of the Antichrist. I understand that there will be wholesale mass rejection of God. I understand that that period of tribulation ends with the glorious manifestation of Jesus Christ on the back of a white horse. Say, preacher, you do believe that? Yeah, because I'm a Bible believer. I believe he's coming back on a white horse. Amen. If it hairlips every country preacher in three counties, I still believe he's coming back on a white horse. Now, don't make me nervous, amen? It shouldn't make you nervous either. And uh, some of you are like, what's he talking about? If you all grew up around here, you'd know, amen? There's places they'd carry you out on a pole for saying what I just said. And I guess I'd just go out shouting if they did. Yeah, I believe that. I know all that's true. But that doesn't seal or set the destiny of my walk with God. I can walk with him till he comes back. I can be found faithful when he returns. And Enoch is an example of a man that didn't yield to a spirit of fatalism, but in faithfulness walked with God. So I I, I consider Enoch's times when I look at his life. But then I see Enoch's testimony. I love what Hebrews 11 says about Enoch. It says this, by faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God translated him. I like this. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Notice your Bible doesn't say that after he was translated, he had this testimony. It says before his translation, he had this testimony. In other words, this is not just reflection from the gates of glory in pointing out and in beatifying the testimony or the walk of a righteous man. But even in his day, men that did not know God knew Enoch did know God. Men that didn't understand God knew that Enoch walked to please God. And in Enoch's life, we have an example of how we please God and how we're to live in this day. I see three things here. One, I see his walk of faith. The Bible says this, that he pleased God. Then it goes on to describe, but without faith, it's impossible to please him. Now, remember, Hebrews 11 is emphasizing the principle of faith. Now, what is faith? Faith is taking God at his word and responding appropriately. It is believing and obeying God's word. Enoch's life was defined and driven by this one simple principle. God exists and he will reward those that seek him by believing and obeying his word. There's much we cannot say definitively about the amount of light that Enoch had. I mean, it could be and likely is so that there's things that Enoch knew about God that you and I don't know about God. He's the seventh from Adam. I mean, he, you understand that, that, uh, you know, all, almost and, and even according to some reckonings entirely, his and Adam's life could have possibly overlapped one with another. And certainly Enoch would have known men that knew Adam firsthand. But I'm also reminded that God has not diminished his revelation towards mankind. He has embellished his revelation towards mankind. And so, yeah, there might have been things that Enoch knew about God that you and I don't. But I I can make this statement, bold as it may be. He may have known things about God that you and I don't know, but we know more about God than Enoch ever could have known. We know more of who God is. Enoch understood this principle. There's a God, and he cares how we live. And I want to live in such a way that I please him. In many ways, we have in germ form, in distilled fashion, What this walk of faith, as we describe it, is, it's saying this is God's word and I believe it to be true. And as such, that's going to produce in my life a certain response, 
a certain attitude and a certain aspiration to please him above all else. If you're going to live for Christ, you're going to have to do it by faith. Paul reiterates this truth in the New Testament when he says we walk by faith and not by sight. Uh, going out, listen, walking by faith, it, it might have fallen out of fashion, but it's not, it, it's not fallen out of command. It may not be a common practice amongst New Testament Christianity, but it's not because somehow they found it to be invalid or outmoded. It's simply because they found it to be inconvenient and incompatible with a worldly lifestyle. Enoch, the reason he lived by faith is not because it helped him be a part of the world, but because it helped him to not be a part of the world. Our, our problem in our concept of faith is we view it as, as some kind of attribute or assistance in helping us to assimilate to the world and achieve the greatest forms of success within it. And, and to reckon that as being the case, listen, you, you might as well, you might as well expel, uh, mm, you might as well expect buttermilk to help ju- fuel a jet plane. It's not what it's for, amen? It's not what it's meant for. It's not the design of it. It's not what God intended for it. The fact of the matter is, faith is not designed to help us assimilate from the world. It's designed to help us be apart from the world in character and in conduct, to make us not similar to the world, but distinct from the world. And because of this, Enoch walked by faith because his desire was that he might be distinct from the world around him. I see his walk of faith described, but then I consider his works of faith. The Bible says that Enoch's testimony was not that he pleased others, or even that he pleased himself. His testimony was that he pleased God. Enoch's faith in God caused him to live differently than the people around him. And biblical faith always produces righteous works. The fact that he pleased God was not just some abstract or esoteric form of religious transcendence. It was that he trusted and believed God and that caused him to behave in a way that God delighted in. And he cared more about what God thought than he cared about what anyone thought. So how do you know that, preacher? Because if he cared what people had thought, he would have lived in a way that displeased God because the majority of society displeased God. And so he lived in such a way and behaved and acted in such a way that was out of step with the world around him. Why? Because he had faith that God rewards those that diligently seek him. You see the interconnectedness. You see how it is the direct result of an attitude of faith. If he didn't believe God was real, what motivation would he have had to have lived in the way that he did? If he didn't believe God had appointed judgment to the world, then why would he have lived in the fashion that he did? No, all this was deeply connected back to his faith. We have tried to substitute formality for faith. We've tried to substitute culture for faith. We have tried to substitute social good and societal uh, investment for faith. But the reality is there is only one motivation that is appropriate for the believer to live in a way that pleases God. And that is faith, believing God, taking him at his word and believing what his word says is true. Religion has been gutted, neutered, and, and, and denigrated into merely being sort of a, a tool for social programming. But that's not what God ever intended for it to be. Not for something that would help bolster us to a greater society, but rather something that would cause us to transcend the societal environment we're in and to live for God in spite of whatever situation we find ourselves in. Enoch, listen, he, I see his walk of faith, I see his works of faith. But then, you know, the little book of Jude gives us an idea uh, of, of, of some of how Jude interacted with the world around us. Uh, listen to what it says in, in, in Jude verses 14 and 15. It says, Enoch also, 
the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, he's talking about ungodly men, prophesied of these ungodly men, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all, and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Well, I bet that made him popular. I mean, I bet he was in high demand. I bet his phone rang off the hook to come preach the latest tent meeting and the latest conference and everything else. No, the fact is, the things that Enoch said would not have won him any friends, but it certainly won him favor in the eyes of God. When we speak about his words of faith, we're not just talking simply about the express words that he stated. We're talking about his attitude towards and his interaction with the world around him. Can I tell you this? It would have been much easier on Enoch for him to do what most Christians today do, which is just to hush up and run out the clock. And let's just go ahead and be honest about it. I mean, that's the attitude of most Christians today. That's why they obsess over doom and gloom. It's why they obsess over the fatalism. It's why they obsess over this constant toilet bowl spiraling of, of political division and, and, and partisan teamsmanship. I mean, it, it's sad to look at it, but we live in a world where most people are gaining their sense of self and purpose and identity out of whatever political uh, cheerleader that they are associated with. You know why that is? Because people lack a sense of purpose. When you get in your Bible, you know what you're going to realize? Ain't none of them for you. I ain't saying they're all for you. And I'm not saying that they ain't some better than others. And I'm not saying that uh, it does not matter where we stand on societal issues. I'm just saying at the end of the day, I ain't got to be a part of any team because I know Christ. And that won't cause me to be middle of the road and non-committal. It won't cause me to walk some sort of, 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 of middle and road where I don't make a definitive statement about anything. I think you know me well enough to know it's not produced that in me. But beyond that, you look at Jude and you see that's not what it produced in him. You can imagine as society in sort of a parody sense was debating and discussing all the various plans they had for the furtherance of society. And I'm sure that mankind had all of its petty debates at that time that it has today. And here's Enoch saying, don't you understand you're under the judgment of God? It's not because things don't matter. It's because there's some things that matter more than other things. And so we find in in this little book of Jude that we learn that Enoch was a prophet. And that he faithfully delivered God's message to the world. You know, true biblical faith will change how we talk and what we talk about. When we have faith in God's word, we will share with others the truth of the Bible and of Jesus Christ. And I will tell you, we're in a lot better position because we have a lot more hopeful message than Jude ever had. Jude, in boldness and courage, proclaimed the word of God as truth. And it is indeed truth. And it was true then and true today. But he wasn't able to... Temper that message with the glorious truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wasn't able to extend a hand of grace and of hope. He merely had to produce the, uh, to, to pronounce the doom of the world. But think about you and I. We get to look at every lost sinner and say, yes, you're condemned. Yes, you're on your way to hell. Yes, you deserve that. So do I. And so did I. But you don't have to go there. You can believe on Jesus Christ and be saved. Listen, if Jude could speak for the Lord in his day, or Enoch could speak for the Lord in his day, surely you and I could speak for the Lord in our day. I see Enoch's times and I see his testimony, but there's another thought that occurs to me. I want to mention it and I'll be done tonight. I want to say a word about Enoch's translation. The Bible says this in Hebrews 11.5, By faith Enoch was translated 
that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. I love the use of the word translation in this passage. Uh, you know, the Bible's its own dictionary. And mankind has developed all sorts of, of definitions to biblical concepts that are not biblical definitions. I remember hearing a preacher say years ago, this always stuck with me, he's talking about preservation. What do we believe about the word of God and God preserving his word? And he made this comment. He said, I'm just a country preacher. And maybe this is a silly illustration. He said, but we grew up canning in, in, in the country. And he said, if I was to can a jar of green beans and six months later I open it up and it's beets, I did something wrong. I did not preserve it. He said it ought to be the same thing when I open it up that it was when I closed it up. If it's going to have been faithfully preserved. And mankind has all these weird, mystical, modern ideas about what preservation means. I believe God preserved his word. If we have something less than his word, he didn't preserve his word. Uh, If we have something other than his word, he didn't preserve his word. But he promised he would in Psalms 12, that he would preserve his word. And he indeed has. And here I love this passage because it defines the concept of translation for us. What is translation? The word translate means to carry from one language to another without changing the meaning. Enoch was translated in a spiritual sense. He was still the same Enoch. However, he was carried or translated from this world into God's very presence. We find in this the meaning of Enoch's translation. And, you know, in many ways what happened to Enoch is similar to what will happen to believers at the rapture. We'll still be the same person, but we will have been changed and, 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 and placed in the presence of God, we'll still have the same. You're still going to have to put up with my annoying personality. I hate to tell you this. Heaven's going to fix a lot of things, but it won't fix that. Amen. Corny jokes and everything else. You're going to have to deal with that. Enoch, he was the same Enoch, but he was changed, translated, brought from one place to another while retaining the essence of who and what he was into the presence of God. Think about not just the meaning of Enoch's translation, but think about the mercy of it. Translating Enoch out of the world before judgment came was an act of God's mercy. God was preserving and protecting Enoch. And you know, though we live in a world that hates Christ and Christians, we can rest assured that God knows how to protect those that trust in him. The entirety of the book of, of, of Second Peter and of the book of Jude are devoted to this theme, that God knows how to reserve the ungodly unto the day of judgment and deliver those that are his. Listen to how Peter says it in Second Peter 2, 9. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. Why did Enoch walk with God? Why, what, was, what was one of the expressions of his faith? He understood that if God is a just and righteous God, then living for him would matter. Now, I want to be abundantly clear with what I'm about to say. Enoch did not, was not translated because he worked hard for the Lord. He was not translated because he, he lived righteously. Those things were the product of his faith. He did those things because he had faith in God. The source or seed of the righteousness of Enoch's behavior was not in his faithfulness, but in his faith, his belief that God is who he says he is and that he rewards those that diligently seek him. And He walked with God believing, you know, if I live for God, it will matter. It will make a difference in my life. It did make a difference in his life. He didn't live to see the flood. 
There's a thousand reasons and a thousand scriptures I could give you for why I believe the church won't live through a minute of the tribulation. And here is one more example of it in which if we're to follow any clear-cut form of typology in the Old Testament, then obviously the flood is a picture of the tribulation, the judgment of God on mankind. Obviously Noah is a picture of the faithful remnant of Israel who go through the tribulation and come to a saving faith of God in the midst of it. And Enoch is a picture of the church who has by faith walked with God and is snatched away, is translated, is carried out before the first drop of rain ever even falls. Hey, Enoch was gone before Noah cut the first tree down to build the ark. It was the mercy of God in carrying him away. And I see the motive for his translation. The book of Hebrews makes clear that God translated Enoch because of his faith. It was not his works or his words, but rather the faith that produced those things that pleased God. And when we place our faith in God, we are promised his protection and his blessing. In other words, it matters to live for him. Walking with God matters. Don't let these people tell you that, well, you know, it's the world's so wicked and broken. We've got to downgrade our Christianity. We've got to somehow compromise our testimony. No, Enoch didn't. Enoch walked with God. You say, but preacher, we're living in darker days. Probably not darker than Enoch's. I mean, let's just be honest. Probably not more wicked than Enoch's day was. You see, we, we you say, well, preacher, the Antichrist could show up any moment. Yeah, and Nimrod showed up any moment in that day. Yeah. But that didn't cause Enoch to say, well, just there's no point in it. Let's throw in the towel and quit living for God. Everything's just sliding south anyway. No. Listen, faith, faith is not fatalism. And faith doesn't produce forfeit. Faith gives us the courage to live for God even in the midst of a wicked day like Enoch's. We ought to to press forward. We We ought to not hang our head low and give up and quit. We ought to say, if Enoch could do that, man, I could do that in the day I'm living in. Let's bow together tonight. A musician's going to come play, and I want you to feel liberty to do business with the Lord. God could have dealt with you about any number of things. And, you know, knowing God and the way God works, he might have dealt with you about something that ain't got anything to do with what I preached on, and that's okay if he did. He, uh, He doeth all things well. And so if God dealt with you about something tonight, why don't you meet him in this altar and just surrender your heart to him, let him have his will and way. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name.